Welcome to the Peds Ethics Podcast, where we talk to leaders in pediatric bioethics about a hot topic or current controversy. Here's your host, John Lantos, from the Children's Mercy Bioethics Center in Kansas City. Hi, this is John Lantos from Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri, bringing you the Pediatric Ethics Podcast. Today, we are thrilled to be talking to Dr. Laura Miller-Smith, the chair of our Hospital Ethics Committee, and a pediatric ICU doctor. We're going to talk about uh, the controversial issue of medical futility, and in particular, a case that's been making headlines from down in Texas, a case involving a baby called named Tinsley Lewis, who's been critically ill down there for quite a while. Welcome, Dr. Miller-Smith. Thanks for joining Hello. us. Great to be here. Thank you. I know that you've been thinking about the Tinsley Lewis case for a while. Can you just summarize for our listeners uh, the medical facts of the case and and the outlines of the controversy? Absolutely. Um, Fortunately, uh, for a period of time, uh, Cook Children's Hospital was given permission from Tinsley's mother to give some information on this case. There is some information online about what's been happening for Tinsley over the last year, so we're not completely in the dark. She's a little girl who's now a year old, born last February. Unfortunately, she has a significant congenital heart disease called Epstein's anomaly that was diagnosed prenatally. And then she was also born prematurely and had respiratory distress syndrome at birth and has Mm -hmm. since developed severe chronic lung disease and severe pulmonary hypertension. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the the surgical palliations that can be done for Epstein's anomaly are significantly more complicated when you have those uh, respiratory diagnoses. She's had multiple surgeries done. One was performed in July that resulted in a cardiac arrest um, in her postoperative period, and she spent some time on ECMO support, so basically heart-lung bypass, uh, very heroic measures to keep her alive. And then had an additional but pretty heroic common surgery. after cardiac surgery. ECMO is pretty it's common not uncommon. after cardiac surgery. Yeah. It, it's not uncommon. That's correct. Um, but even at the time, the physicians have stated that they were concerned about her long-term prognosis and did feel that that was heroic for her. Did they think that um, she had a neurologic injury at that time? I do not believe so. I have not seen any evidence of neurologic injury reported anywhere, um, that she okay. has the capability of interacting with her environment However, her pulmonary hypertension is so bad that she has been on continuous high-dose sedative infusions and also uh, most often chemically paralyzed because Mm. um, any significant movement has um, resulted in worsening um, cardiopulmonary function. Um, So it it sounds like around um, September... Um, with not being able, she was able to come off ECMO support, but not able to wean on ventilator support. It was around that time that the family was probably not first. It's probably a conversation that was occurring much before then. But around that time, the family was being counseled that uh, placing DNR orders may be in Tinsley's best interest. Mm-hmm. In the beginning of October, it was escalated to the ethics committee. The family didn't want to engage with the ethics committee. Um, the, the hospitals reported that they, they did try to reach out to uh, Tinsley's mom, um, and she did not want to meet with them. But then the hospital followed the Texas Advanced Directive Act um, that if a physician wants to place 
limitations to advancement of care or wants to withdraw technology, that it needs to be reviewed by the Ethics Committee. Um, so at the end of October, um, the Ethics Committee convened to review Tinsley's case. Tinsley's mother and grandparents were present to represent their side of the story, but after getting all the information, the Ethics Committee did uh, recommend uh, that technology be removed. So they actually said stop the ventilator and let Tinsley die? Allow her to die a natural death. Correct. Okay. What happened next? Uh, Consistent with the Texas Advanced Directive Act, the hospital gave the parents or the family uh, 10 days to reach out to other facilities to accept Tinsley and transfer. The hospital, however, had already reached out to multiple facilities. So um, by the time this 10-day period was over, there was 20 hospitals, very well-respected facilities, that had uh, agreed with Cook Children's assessment of the case and had refused to accept Tinsley. 20 hospitals said no, they don't want to accept her and transfer. That's correct. Okay. So Tinsley's mother reached out to um, the Texas Right to Life group um, to help advocate for uh, her beliefs that there was still hope for Tinsley to recover, or at least to stabilize enough that she could eventually be discharged from the hospital for palliative care. Instead, since that time, the, um, the family has been appealing uh, the case in court, and the uh, Cook Children's has not been um, allowed um, to remove technological support from Tinsley. So she uh, continues to be technologically supported at their hospital. And that is now four months after the Ethics Committee uh, recommended that her life support be withdrawn. That's correct. So how unusual are cases like this? Well, I, you read the, the story, and I imagine any intensivist uh, can relate uh, to Tinsley's case. I mean, I, just different children's stories pop into my head that seem very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, so having cases that we are not able to um, cure or even palliate enough to get a child discharged from the ICU is not uncommon. Mm-hmm. Most of the time we can get parents over time to work with the healthcare team to allow a natural death in a way that's consistent with their beliefs. On uh, some more rare occurrences, we will have disagreements with the family that may eventually escalate to what we may call an intractable disagreement, where we mm-hmm. have to start bringing in bringing in the ethics committee or other um, psychosocial supports within the hospital or even reach out to other facilities in order to get them to weigh in um, on the disagreement. But again, most of those disagreements with time and really good communication were able to work out without the case being escalated either to the media or to the courts. Mm-hmm. It's very rare um, that a, a case like this is going to be escalated outside of the hospital walls. And how do they usually resolve, in your experience? Do uh, doctors just continue treatment, or do parents finally uh, come around and accept the withdrawal of life support? My experience is the majority of time, parents just need a little bit longer to reach the conclusion the healthcare team has already reached. Typically, that's a matter of weeks. 
Unfortunately, sometimes it could be months. But if we're able to support the child's body in a way that is not detrimental to them, like we're not causing undue pain and suffering, Mm -hmm. We'll continue to do that to allow parents to see what they need to see to understand why we've reached the decision um, or reached that we're making the recommendation that the the best option is to withdraw technology. And most families are going to understand that. Sometimes the progression of the disease is also going to just highlight to them that the patient's going to become increasingly unstable and they'll recognize that um, their child is actually dying. There was a famous case, uh, famous like got a lot of publicity in the UK a couple of years ago, Charlie Gard, but but he had a degenerative disease that was just getting worse and worse over time, and that was the natural history. Is is that also true for uh, this Epstein's anomaly that Tinsley has? The Epstein's anomaly um, is not necessarily degenerative. Um, the, the problem is, is that the, the palliation is, the palliation that she's received is incomplete. Mm-hmm. Uh, so over time, she will likely develop um, worsening pulmonary hypertension, um, certainly being maintained on a ventilator, likely on high support, is going to cause worse lung damage. And eventually, her heart um, will likely fail. Um, but with uh, how advanced technology is nowadays, we, we really do have the ability to sustain life for this little girl for quite some time. Not knowing the nuances of her case, I don't, I don't know how long the physicians there could predict that, uh, predict mm-hmm. how long they could sustain her. But, um, so, it, so yes, it would be degenerate over time, but I imagine that this um, you know, excellent hospital would be able to keep her body supported for, for a, a very long period of time. Now, would she be a candidate for a heart transplant? Um, she would need to have a heart and lung transplant. Um, for her size, that is an incredibly limited resource. Um, mm-hmm. And I do believe that Cook Children's uh, reached out to facilities that offer heart-lung transplants, and um, they, they declined to um, offer that therapy or that intervention. So let's step back for a minute from the details of her case and talk about uh, the Texas Advanced Directive Act, the law sure. that permits physicians to go through this process and then uh, essentially override or unilaterally make a decision to withdraw life support. Um, that's unique to Texas, uh, uh, correct? That is unique to Texas. There's no other state that has similar legislation. Um, I believe it's been tried in Virginia, but not passed. But yes, very, very unique to Texas. Um, and uh, I believe it passed in like 1999. Is, uh, does that sound correct? I think it's been heavily debated since that time. Yeah. What, what, what are the implications of a case like this, where uh, the hospital goes through the process, meets all the legal requirements, and then um, the courts still hold up the um, plan to withdraw life support? Well, I think the intention, uh, so interestingly, when the law was first passed, there was agreement from, you know, the the right to life groups that are currently somewhat in opposition of the law. Uh, The benefit to them at the time was that it was a transparent process for families and patients um, so that there wasn't concern of unilateral decisions being made that they weren't aware of and that they could be aware of what decision, uh, what the process was for the decision. The benefit for physicians was that as long as they followed this process, um, they were, uh, they were, they were, 
not legally at risk, that they were being protected from um, any um, you know, suits against them uh, for uh, withdrawing technology. So it seemed to be benefit to both families, patients, and also, also to healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. So certainly concerning at this time that the law that was supposed to allow physicians to do this without risk of having to go uh, to court, um, that no longer seems to be the case, um, that mm-hmm. the families are able um, to um, take this to court and to continue to appeal the cases, uh, leaving the healthcare system kind of in in this limbo. So it really just kind of defeats the in- initial um, intention of, of this act uh, by allowing um, all these the, the cases to be appealed the way they are. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly there's lots of people who think that the uh, act needs to be revised or eliminated. And when you have a case similar to this, a case where you and your colleagues think that it is in a child's best interest to uh, withdraw life support and the family doesn't agree, what what is the most troubling aspect of that for you and your team? I think the most troubling aspect is that we uh, worry we may be causing undue pain and suffering to the patient um, in order to meet a family's unrealistic hopes. Um, While I think certainly there's always a concern in the back of our heads somewhere back there that there may be legal implications um, as we get into these intractable disagreements. The healthcare providers I know are really focusing on what is in the best interest of the patient. Mm-hmm. I particularly feel for bedside staff who are in the rooms of patients, you know, 24 hours a day, um, who are being asked nurses to do the blood draws. Exactly. The nurses and even respiratory therapists, um, you know, anyone who's in there on a regular basis who are, who are actually, you know, fulfilling the physician's orders and feel like they're causing harm to the patient on a regular basis. There's a lot of moral distress that comes from that. Um, and I know that's a big concern now at Cook Children's for their staff. Um, it's, you know, we talk about the resources that go into some of these futility cases. Um, I think many providers are less concerned about the financial resources, but it's the, one of our most important resources, and that's our staff. Um, mm-hmm. We need our nurses and our physicians to be able to come back and do this work every day. Um, and this, it, um, when you feel like you are causing harm to patients, um, that can have a, a huge toll on the healthcare provider's well-being um, and lead to burnout. Have you ever had a case where you were um, certain that a baby was going to die and they surprised you and survived mm-hmm. to leave the hospital? Yep, and that's that. There's where the challenge is. Um, I, I certainly have. You know, there I can think of um, one case that pops into my head where I counseled a family multiple times that the likelihood mm-hmm. of that child ever leaving the hospital was was mm-hmm. close to nothing. Um, but that we were willing to keep on going because I, I because I didn't think the pain and suffering the child was experiencing was worth, you know, really battling that family about. I thought we could continue and they would they would see and uh, mm-hmm. remarkably the child got better. Um, and uh, another well, care provider sends me pictures. <laughs> yes, it does. Um, and I think that's um, we when a physician makes the recommendation that technology is no longer in the child's best interest, it's not something that they typically come to lightly. 
um, in the media on the Tinsley case, it's, there's a lot of implications from folks who don't know the situation that the healthcare providers decided one day that this was futile. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is something that has been going on for months and months there. Um, yeah. And, and you know, they've yet to have evidence to the contrary. But I think, I think all critical care doctors can think of a time where they were wrong. And that's, uh, so there, there is, you do have to be humble um, and take that in consideration. And that's one of the reasons uh, why the law stipulates uh, multiple layers of review, I suppose, to make sure it's not one doctor making an off-the-cuff decision or right. hastily. Right. And I think, um, right, and then requiring or allowing, allowing um, uh, families to reach out to other facilities to ensure that there's other right. people who are reviewing it. Um, and if someone else there's thinks a it's a reasonable to offer, yeah, agree, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, we will certainly be um, following this case, and uh, perhaps we'll give our listeners an update uh, if the case is resolved one way or the other. Either Tinsley gets better and goes home, or uh, uh, sadly, if she passes away. Thank you very much. Been talking to Laura Miller Smith, a pediatric intensivist and chair of the Hospital Ethics Committee here at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri. This is the Pediatric Ethics Podcast coming to you from the Children's Mercy Bioethics Center. I'm John Lantos. Thanks for listening.